Welcome. This is Mark Steiner, and you're listening to Sound Bites on the Mark Steiner Show here on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and on WSDL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio. Sound Bites is our weekly exploration of issues related to food, agriculture, and the environment. This morning, we discuss the important role that food policy councils are playing across the country and in the state of Maryland. That's coming up later in the second part of Sound Bites. First, we delve into these two bills that are coming before the Maryland State Legislature. One is called the Poultry Litter Management Act, and the other is called the Farmers' Rights Act. We're about to have another one of our chicken conversations, which is a mainstay here on the Mark Steiner Show and Sound Bites, because um, it is, in many ways, what the discussions are about the future of the shore and the state. Uh, we're joined here by Betsy Nicholas, who is co-chair of the Maryland Clean Agriculture Coalition and executive director of Waterkeepers Chesapeake, Doug Myers, who is the Maryland senior scientist at the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, and Mitch Jones, senior policy advocate for Food and Water Watch. Good to have you all with us here. Um, Thank you. Let's just leap into this the whole question. There are two big issues here, it seems to me. One is this farmer's rights bill, which was, was didn't get out of committee last year, if I remember right, at all. But it's different this year. It's been modified a little bit, yeah. It's um, We got some uh, suggestions on how to streamline the bill um, and uh, clarify certain components in it. So it's been – it's not radically different. It, I wouldn't say it's necessarily sub- substantively different, but it's a, a shorter, more digestible bill. <laughs> so, so, Betsy, I mean, so tell me, talk about what, 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 what is being a, a profit here to the state. Basically, it's a really simple – bill. It's looking at just shifting responsibility onto those who um, should be responsible. We have the big chicken companies who own the chickens, but then um, pay growers to raise them for them. But the growers, unfortunately, are usually small farmers and contract growers who don't have a lot of resources. But they're then responsible for dealing with the chicken waste, which can be a really big expense for them. So this would make it so that the large chicken companies are responsible for making sure that waste is picked up and properly handled. So, uh, and Doug, uh, I'd like you to jump in here. I mean, just your thoughts sure. on that. But, but, uh, and uh, yeah, let me just let you jump in. I then I have a very specific question about this. Sure. So, uh, our perspective at Chesapeake Bay Foundation is that uh, you know through the passage of the phosphorus management tool, which we accomplished last year, um, there's new requirements on farmers who use chicken litter as fertilizer to uh, not add to the phosphorus saturation of their soils should that uh, be found in in, uh, using the phosphorus management tool to test their soil. So uh, we're expecting a large increase in the amount of manure that would have to be dealt with in some other way than land applied. Currently, there's uh, a state cost share program for uh, manure transport, but that costs the taxpayer. Uh, so we should uh, expect to see greatly increased cost to the taxpayer in order to comply with the new phosphorus management tool, which is the right thing to do, um, but for how much? Um, we, again, see that uh, if the local grower does not have um, the land to land apply it, they would have to transport it, cost share that with uh, us, the taxpayers, and still we're not seeing a contribution from the chicken company who owns the, the bird. So uh, one of the things I, I can I can hear um, people in the farming community saying is, so who's asking for this? 
are the farmers asking for, for for your protection, or are or is this being done because you think it the farmers need protection, but nobody's asking them to be part of it? Well, there's there's two different bills here and two different issues. I think uh, work so the apart. yeah. So the Farmers Rights Act is a piece of legislation that deals with the. Um, inequity that exists in the contracts between the large, uh, you know, uh, poultry companies like Purdue or Tyson or Mount Air and those uh, contract growers and farmers that Betsy mentioned. There is um, a real imbalance in power within that industry, not just here in Maryland, but across the country. Um, And we've talked about it before on your show. So the Farmers' Rights Act attempts to uh, get at that – imbalance of power by giving certain protections to the growers. It allows them, for instance, to form a growers association without retaliation. Um, It makes specific um, some components of uh, readability um, in the the, uh, contracts themselves, and it um, addresses a variety of issues. Now, last year, one of the things that it included was a provision that allowed the growers to say to uh, the large uh, poultry companies, Look, I have too much excess manure on my farm. I don't want it because it's become a liability to me. You need to take it away. That piece of the Farmers' Rights Act has now been broken out and reworked and expanded and made stronger uh, and been turned into the Poultry Litter Management Act, which is the the piece of legislation that specifically says that the uh, – the integrators, that's the term of art, but the big poultry companies, the Purdue's, the Tyson's, the Mount Airs, these multi-billion dollar companies, have the responsibility, not the grower, 71% of whom without off-farm income live at the poverty level or below, not the Maryland taxpayer, who just since 1999 have uh, paid – over $5.6 million to this industry for it to move its manure. but those companies themselves have the responsibility for moving that manure. And as Doug mentioned, with the PMTs coming online, we're going to see a real increase in the amount of excess manure that is on the shore. And if I could give you one brief example, and then I'll let somebody else talk. Um, in 2014, under the manure transport program that Doug mentioned, there was approximately 47,000 tons of poultry litter that was moved under that program. And because of the way the program's currently set up, although that cost about $840,000, we taxpayers were on the, on the hook for half of that, or 420000 in 2014. We could see there is, you know, the current estimate is that there's about 228,000 tons of excess manure on the eastern shore. 228,000 tons. That, because of the PMT, most, if not all of that, wouldn't be able to be land applied. That's why it's excess. So we'd be seeing the costs of the pro, uh, the costs of that moving go up to about four million dollars. And at the same time, the Hogan administration has proposed regulatory changes to get rid of the cost share component, so that industry wouldn't necessarily have to pay any of that. And that four million dollars a year would be borne by the taxpayers. So and, and so, tell me uh, if you could, then, Doug, and then Betsy. I mean. How your organizations, what your positions is positions are on this, and, and what you think the bills would do? Right, certainly we're supporting the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. It's our number one priority for this legislative session um, because I, I think it is timely. It's the necessary uh, second step after the phosphorus management tool. The, the tool was designed to be able to uh, limit phosphorus application to what 
the crops can take up and no more, um, realizing upon the passage of that regulation that it would start affecting um, the ability for farmers to be able to land apply as they had been, or it would uh, uh, be back into the manure transport program. So this was always kind of in the back of our minds as a necessary next step so that we would not uh, leave the farmer holding the bag. Um, there's another real advantage to this from our standpoint um, in that if you're going to generate uh, manure treatment technologies, uh, it's best to centralize that resource where you can do large-scale anaerobic digestion or um, uh, composting uh, rather than trying to set up hundreds of different farmers uh, setting up contracts to either uh, purchase um, and run equipment that they may not be uh, versed in or have the, the space for, uh, try to sell contracts for power generation back to the utilities. All that kind of stuff is generally well beyond what the farmers have signed up for, but it's certainly uh, an economy of scale that works when you're centralizing uh, the manure resource, and we like to call it a resource instead of a waste product, uh, in the hands of the, of the industry who centralizes everything else. And, 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 and for Waterkeepers Chesapeake, this is something that we support very much as well. And this is really, as Doug said, a critical next step. We've taken a big, important first step in limiting the amount of phosphorus and manure that can be applied with the regulations that were passed last year. But now we're going to have an excess, and we need a plan to deal with this. So in terms of who's calling for this, this is really looking proactively for steps to ensure that um, there is a plan and that this can be enacted in a fair way. We don't want all of the burden to fall on our small contract growers and family farmers, nor do we want it to fall just on our Maryland taxpayers. It should be shared. We should all take our part, which means the big poultry companies also have to do their part in this system and ensuring that we have a clean Chesapeake for our future. And Mitch is right. There's a great power imbalance uh, in the contracting between the, the growers and the integrators. And so most of the growers are not going to stand up and say, yeah, I want you to take my poultry litter away. So this has been written in a, a this le uh, legislation has been written in a way that basically uh, requires the farmer to opt out. Um, that, to opt out uh, of what? Um, to opt out of uh, having their chicken litter picked up every, every year by the integrator. So it requires the integrators to pick it up unless the farmer demands that they be able to keep it because they have either the space to do it, um, they have the, the soil conditions that can still take it as a fertilizer, or they have some other manure treatment technology that they've already developed uh, that they can make a profit from. So right. they don't want the integrator to take it. Right. So, and, and, and it needs to be accounted for within their, you know, the farmers, the growers have a nutrient uh, management plan that they have to file with the state. Um, and this bill requires that any manure that they keep has to be um, in accord with an, uh, an up-to-date, unexpired nutrient management plan so that we know that the, the manure being field applied actually is within their plan. It actually does uh, conform to the regulations under the phosphorus management tool. Um, so there is that component in here as well. If a grower wants to keep the litter, they have to be able to demonstrate that it's going to be used in a responsible way. And I would also add that there is um, a requirement in the legislation that the large uh, chicken company would also have to demonstrate that when they 
move the excess manure, they're going to deal with it in an environmentally responsible way and not just, for instance, take it from the impaired Chesapeake Bay watershed and, say, move it to the impaired Ohio River watershed. So a, a couple of questions here. Um, w- one is, Betsy, w- when you said that there would be more excess phosphorus now, little now, well, why, is, why would there be more with PMT? Yes. Or did um, I misunderstand in a re- No, you didn't. In a recent study um, by the Environmental Integrity Project, looking at farmer-reported data, it was found that um, because there is currently no requirement like the phosphorus management tool regulations that were put into effect last year limiting what's being applied, farmers were applying chicken manure not just as a fertilizer, as it can be properly applied, but also basically as waste. They were applying three times more phosphorus than their, than their fields could handle, rather than transporting it off their land because they didn't want to bear the expense of transporting it. When the phosphorus management tool goes into effect, they will not be able to over-apply it in that same way because that phosphorus runs off their land and pollutes the neighboring waterways. So that's why there's going to be even more phosphorus than we now have this excess. Okay, that's important to kind of clarify. Doug, go ahead. Sorry, I would just add that, uh, and they do that legally uh, until the PMT goes into effect because they were using a nitrogen-based nutrient management plant. So if you put enough litter on to meet the nitrogen requirements of the crops, you would be using two or three or four or five times more phosphorus than than the crop needs. So uh, the PMT definitely changes the rules that basically means that nutrient management in Maryland is now a phosphorus-based nutrient management uh, system. So you really need to uh, apply only what the the soil uh, uh, phosphorus uh, can take, and then any additional nitrogen you need needs to be from a source of nitrogen fertilizer that does not have phosphorus in it. That's a very big, game-changing way to do nutrient management in the state. And so while it was completely legal what they were doing before, it was essentially um, a solid waste disposal in reality. So when does the PMT go into effect? It starts immediately for any farms that have this uh, fertility index value of uh, 500 or greater. So if it's a very saturated field, uh, those field tests are coming in from around the state right now. About 68.2% of those have been reported to the Department of Agriculture as of this afternoon's uh, briefing from the department. And as the rest of them come in, they will map um, where those high saturated fields are, and they will uh, immediately have to cease phosphorus um, uh, fertilization of those fields. And then as different levels, uh, lower levels of, of soil saturation are found, those will be put onto a schedule for later phase in. They didn't want to do everybody at one time because it would completely overwhelm our, our so, system. Uh, I want to explain what, what Mitch raised a little earlier um, about the litter and being picked up. It, so there's a lot of excess litter, as we just were pointing out here. Um, more to come with PMT. So where does it go? So, all right, so you say, the, the, for argument's sake, let's say that the majority of the legislature agrees and that, that, um, um, that the large integrators have to pay for a portion of this, of, of the litter that's moved, or all of it, however that works out. So where does it go? Move so to where? It would be to their advantage um, to do something with it before they tried to ship it. You know, raw manure is heavy, and... Uh, you, you do have this issue of you'd have to move it outside of this watershed to places where um, it, it, you can apply it on soil. 
certainly want to make sure where those land application sites are where it's coming and, and figures into their nutrient management program so it doesn't uh, create a hazard there. <clears throat> but there are some technologies like uh, large-scale thermal composting and uh, anaerobic digestion that can treat and lower the, the volume and, and weight of that material significantly uh, before it would have to be moved. And it would generate a lot of electricity either through biogas or uh, generate electricity directly <clears throat> that the, the industry could use um, before they ship that material away. There's also some technologies that separate the phosphorus from the, the nitrogen as a post-processing of the digestator of the compost uh, that can allow you to just ship the phosphorus component out. Um, that could be a new growth industry for the East for sure. I, I would uh, just jump in to point out that uh, Food and Water Watch and Chesapeake Bay Foundation have a difference of opinion on um, the uh, anaerobic digestion, anaerobic digestion, and, and and waste to energy component of of the industry. And there is a, a third bill uh, that's going to be in that I uh, mentioned the last time I was on your show, Mark, about that. But um, y- you know, the fact of the matter is, as Doug mentioned, there are soils in the country that have not been supersaturated with phosphorus and you know, the idea is that the the excess manure could be transported to those fields. It is a component, as I mentioned, of the legislation that the companies are supposed to be able to demonstrate that the uh, material will be disposed of uh, appropriately in an environmentally friendly way. But I would point out that a large amount of the money that we've been spending as taxpayers on the manure transport program for the poultry portion is for Purdue specifically to pick up manure and transport it to their um, – it's called a pelletizer plant. So it turns the, the into a pellet um, fertilizer. Uh, that plant is located in Delaware, but we taxpayers are paying to ship uh, Purdue's uh, manure there. Uh, it's a for-profit facility that's never been able to turn a profit, which suggests to you that maybe the um, – the value of the soil. Every time we're in Annapolis, the poultry industry always tells us that this is a wonderful gift that they give the chicken manure. I'll edit myself there. That they leave for the um, the farmers is a wonderful gift. It's liquid gold. And you know the fact of the matter is that if that were true, I would think we'd be able to see um, that that pelletizer plant, which we Maryland taxpayers are effectively subsidizing by paying for a portion of the the shipment of the manure there. Uh, being able to turn a profit, and there's no evidence that that's been the case. So, and 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 Betsy, how, how do you all stand on this issue? Well, I don't think that there's one absolute answer to any of this, but the the fact of the matter is that right now the chicken industry is expanding, and in a way that's getting bigger and bigger and more consolidated. And if you look at the companies having to incorporate the expense of their waste. Perhaps that's going to fundamentally shift this model away from getting bigger and bigger and more condensed. And maybe we're going to shift back to smaller, less condensed, more sustainable systems because then you can incorporate the waste. And it won't be more expensive to grow that way because that's going to be taken into account on the front end of the system instead of being an expense that taxpayers have to pay for later. So just very quickly, yeah, I think it, there's, go ahead. Sorry, there's less daylight between our positions than it may sound right now. I, I think there's a pragmatic um, statement that Chesapeake Bay Foundation puts out that is while we are definitely in favor of and trying to sway 
agriculture to be more sustainable in the long run, we have a deadline between now and 2025 to meet the Bay uh, TMDL, the, the total maximum daily load, to reduce nitrogen phosphorus and sediment. And we can't wait for that industry to make wholesale changes to the way it grows uh, food. We, we want them to happen, want that to happen, we want it to happen quickly, but we're pragmatic about how we deal with the existing condition of excess manure being applied uh, to saturated soils uh, between now and 2025 when it has to be done. So in, in, in the short time we have left here, um, I, I, I just want to throw this out to you while we have like two minutes left here just very quickly. So if, if the, the industry comes back and saying, see, I told you, this, this work that you're doing is to kill our industry. You want to make it smaller. You want to put us out of business. I think that, you know, what Betsy mentioned is that the, this industry at the moment it is in an expansionary phase, and they have yet to be able to demonstrate that they can even deal with the waste product that they leave behind in a responsible manner for the size that it is now. The problem is over-concentration of the numbers of animals in the area where it's raised. It's not only a problem for the poultry industry in Maryland or on Delmarva. It's not only a problem for the poultry industry. It's a problem for hogs. It's a problem for cattle. It's a model that was adopted, as you know very well, Mark, about 50 years ago. The increasing concentration of large numbers of animals with no plan in place and no idea at all how they were going to deal with the waste other than saying, not our problem and throwing up their hands. There are 200 applications for new and expanded chicken houses on Delmarva right now. There are 70 applications for chicken houses just in Somerset County in Maryland, which is already a county with high poverty, with uh, high levels of, of cancer rates, and um, it's a it's also a high people of color uh, community. And it's you know the the environmental community is saying, look, these folks need to figure out how to deal with this waste. They, before they can expand, they definitely need to figure it out. But it's also the case that they need to figure out how to deal with it now because they're already producing way too much of it. And if they can't behave responsibly in this manner, then they really need to rethink the way that they're trying to, to do their business. So let me get uh, – we, we're really out here. We have 30 seconds left. But Betsy, I haven't heard from you in a, couple, in a minute. Let me get, get a closing thought. Well, I think it's a, really an issue of long-term sustainability versus short-term. Massive growth is going to mean maybe the industry could have a boom in the short term, but it's never going to survive long term. And what we really want is something that's going to be good for Maryland and our Delmarva communities for the long term, which means more sustainable. Betsy Nichols is co-chair of the Maryland Clean Agriculture Coalition and executive director of of Waterkeepers Chesapeake. Doug Myers is Maryland's senior scientist at the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, and Ms. Jones is senior policy advocate for Food and Water Watch. As this uh, debate continues through the legislature, legislature, we'll be covering with some intensity. We're going to take a brief break and thank my guests for coming. Appreciate you all taking your time today. Uh, we're going to hear from the industry. Stay with us. Welcome back. We're now about to talk to Valerie Connolly, who is executive director of the Maryland Farm Bureau. And Valerie, welcome back. Good to have you with us. It's been a while. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate you coming. So I, I this every session there's the questions about poultry industry come up, um, and in this session there will be bills introduced um, around the, the one's called the Farmers Rights Act and the other called the Poultry Litter Management Act, and of course then there'll be questions about um, litter to energy coming up as well. 
Um, and so I'm just curious, I mean, a short take here, your thoughts on what those acts might mean for the industry and what you think about them. Uh, the, it's starting with this thing called the, the, the poultry, the Farmers' Rights Act, which would say that farmers have a right to organize and have their own association without fear of losing contracts, which I think is, <laughs> in essence, what it means. Well, I think it's, um, it's certainly not something that farmers in the state of Maryland are asking for. And the folks who are supporting it may be well-intentioned, but the business relationship, the contractual agreement between farmers and poultry companies is mutually beneficial. That's why they enter into it, and that's why it has lasted for as long as it has. Um, farmers are not asking us to have government intervene in their contractual relationship with the company they work for. So do you think, do you know of any farmer support for this bill at all? Have you heard from anybody? There is no member of Maryland Farm Bureau that is asking to have this bill move forward, um, and, and our members will ask us to go in and oppose it. Um, and, and one of the arguments, I think, is that, that there are, I forget the percentage now, 38%, whatever that number is, of farmers that are living close to poverty, and this is to protect them. I don't think that there farmers don't agree that this bill will protect them. Farmers, farmers decide how they're going to grow their crops and who they're going to be in relationships with based on market demand and, you know, their individual farming styles or desires for the future. And they are not interested in government limiting that or directing how it should work. The other act, which is um, the, the, the poultry, Liter- poultry Literature Management Act, I guess people are wrestling with what to do with with the post-PMT and how you do with the accumulation of, of litter that will happen po- post-act, is that they, the argument of this act is to shift the responsibility for payment uh, and responsibility from the contractors, the farming contractor, to the integrators themselves, to uh, Purdue or Tyson or Mount Air, in terms of managing and moving the litter and being responsible for where it goes. Now, what, is, there, is, it, is there a discussion there that about, about the responsibility of, of the integrators along with the farmers? I mean, how do you see that? Well, I think, first off, this whole discussion is premature. Um, you know, we just adopted the regulations for the PMT, and we agreed that we're going to have a six-year phase-in of that. And part of the reason for the phase-in is to determine how much poultry litter there is actually in excess of what is needed for use as fertilizer. Because, again, farmers believe that the best use of poultry litter is as fertilizer, where the soil key levels will allow that to continue to be used. So we've just begun to collect the data on where we might have soils that are going to be too high to use it as fertilizer. Second, there are... I think up to 30 different companies out there exploring alternative use technologies. And that is where everybody should be putting their efforts right now to make sure that these alternative use technologies come to fruition. We already know that Purdue has a pelletizing plant. We know there are folks looking at anaerobic digestion. Um, There are people looking to burn poultry litter to produce energy. Um, There is a company out there looking to separate the phosphorus from the nitrogen in the poultry litter so that farmers can continue to use it for the nitrogen value. There are good technologies that are being explored 
they're not final yet. And to to determine today that all of the poultry litter should belong to the poultry companies or the poultry farmer, again, is premature. If there's a value to poultry litter and these alternative technologies come to fruition, farmers want to be the ones to determine whether they sell it or use, you know, whether they use it themselves as a fertilizer, sell it to another farmer, or sell it to a company that's going to use it for an alternative use. So one of the arguments made, I'm just, you know, I just want to hear your thoughts on this, one of the arguments made um, under the Poultry Litter Management Act, as I understand it from why I just heard from the other people, is that the state now pays the, the, of whatever they paid last year, they said $5.6 million to move the manure. Um, and that should and, and and that cost needs to be shared. I mean, is there an, is there a discussion? It's already about- shared. The poultry companies are matching the money that the state's putting into the poultry litter transport program. They've been doing it since 1998, when the mandatory nutrient management law was passed. They're sharing it. And you know, just anecdotally, I talked to a farmer three days ago who told me the farmers can't find fertil or can't find poultry litter to use as fertilizer. They're calling around trying to get it from other farmers. But it's in use, or it's being used by Purdue in the pelletizing plant or in some of the composting facilities that he's developing, so, or the company, not him personally. But, I mean, the point is the poultry companies have stepped up. Purdue is a full-time person who's going out and evaluating the alternative technologies that are out there to determine which ones are feasible and which ones are going to allow him to continue his partnership with farmers in the state into the future. And... And the other companies are participating in this discussion as well. So I don't think that the farmers in Maryland believe that there is um, any any effort on the part of the poultry companies to walk away from this. Too important. Everybody knows that if we're going to continue to grow poultry in Maryland, everybody who's part of the part of the business relationship has to be part of the solution. And again, it's six years away before the final. Uh, before the date occurs when we have to make the massive transition. And I, I believe and the farmers believe that we're going to move towards that, figure out what those technologies are, and that everybody will be part of the solution. So uh, just wrapping it up, I mean, so, so your position, these, these, all these bills right now, from your perspective, are, are premature and that you will be working to, 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 to not have them pass. Well, the, the poultry litter bill is premature. The discussion doesn't need to occur yet. The, the Farmers' Rights Protection Act, or whatever they're calling it, now and um, we will be working to defeat, not because it's premature, but because it's an issue, it's, it's, it's a piece of legislation or it's a law that doesn't need to be passed and that farmers aren't, aren't asking to have their business relationship guided by a government statute. We'll be following this, Albert Conley, and I do appreciate, once again, you're taking your time, and, and I hope you feel better really soon. Valerie, Con- <laughs> <laughs> Valerie Conley is executive director of the Maryland Farm Bureau. Thanks so much, Valerie. We'll be talking to you during the session. Good to hear from you. Thank you. Thank you. We have to take a very short break, but don't go away. When we come back, we learn what food policy councils are and the important role they're playing here in Maryland and across the country to direct and guide our food policy. Stay with us. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner. You're listening to The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites right here on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and WSDL, 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio. We're about to have a conversation with Ann Palmer, who is Program Director for the Center for a Livable, Livable Future at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. And good to see you. Thank you. So we talked a long time around these issues of food policy councils and and 
I just want to kind of def- begin this program by defining what that means, then talk about where they are across the state and what they're doing. So what exactly is this Food Policy Council? So we define Food Policy Councils as groups of stakeholders who are working in various sectors in the food system that come together to try to work on solutions to common problems. And that can be, you know, it's producers, it's, um, you know, people in food marketing, it's academics, it's community activists, uh, it is institutions, it's city government. So there's a role for a lot of different sectors in food, but there isn't a place where those sectors come together to meet and discuss and think about how they can work together um, to solve food problems. And food problems, that can be a lot of things. Yes. Right? Yeah. And it is, I think I should clarify by saying it's problems within the system in which they're currently operating. So if they're at the scale at the city level, you're looking at very different food policy issues than you are, say, at the state level. But And again, at the federal level. But those levels interact, intersect. And so it's really important to understand how does federal food policy and agricultural policy affect the work at the state level and the local level? And how can those groups interact with that legislation to benefit their own communities? So I think one of the things you see that's common, we all groups that define themselves as working on food policy issues are maybe not even at the place where they're doing policy at this point because it takes quite a bit of time. So one thing that you see that is common, though, is that you're trying to bring together people who would otherwise not be sitting in the same room to work on these issues. And so you have everybody's perspective at the table. Not sitting in the same room because they work in so many different sectors because they're opposed and think different ideas? I mean, Both. Right? I think it's, it's uh-huh. all of the above. And uh-huh. I think it's... One of the things I find so exciting about this work is that there, food does not have to be a partisan issue. Certainly there are many venues in which there are partisan issues around food. But I also feel like there are a lot of opportunities in this sector to look at you know, what the options are and say, is there something we can do that benefits multiple sectors and that we all feel like would have an impact and is worth working on? And so when the people come in that room, they're not necessarily getting their food issue on the table right away. It's not about, I want to get my work done, and this is, I want to make sure you all know this should be your priority. Mm-hmm. To me, it's much more about what's the scoping exercise? What's the universe of possibilities? What's going on out there that brought these people together in the room in the first place? And because food has not been part of the public sector until recently, where we're hearing about it more and more, I think that it's an area that's still, there's a lot to be learned and a lot of um, approaches that are untested and that we're in this very steep learning curve as to what are the best ways to go about doing this. Because you can do food policy without being part of a food policy council. But there's also great value, I believe, in bringing together that stakeholder model because it's less about you know, what a coalition where you've got this single issue that is driving the agenda and much more about how do we start to understand everybody's different perspective and bring it to bear in, in a policy situation and oftentimes a public education and advocacy. There's a lot of work that goes around that to make policy actually possible. But I think it's there's many more opportunities I see there than I see in some other sectors perhaps where it is more um, – they're more mature in some ways and they're you know more advanced and maybe less likely to need to do that type of work. But with food, because it's relatively new for public policy, I think there, you see – some pretty creative approaches to how people are doing it. So I mean, let's talk about some of the things in the approach. I mean, so I mean, because a food policy council in Prince George's County would be doing different things than what would happen either in Montgomery County or Frederick County or Baltimore City. So I mean, 
they're all very different, right? They're all different. And it, it, the jurisdictional level, I mean, some, that somewhat does dictate what your authority is. So the first thing is to ask, how are the groups organized? Is government directly involved? Are they staffed by somebody from government, like they're in Baltimore City? Or is it um, a separate group that has government participation? So there are planners that sit on the Prince George's Food Equity Council that are part of that work. So they're helping to influence. That's what it's called in Prince George's County, Food Equity Council. Food Equity Council. And in Montgomery County, it's called the Food Council, Montgomery County Food Council. They don't have the word policy in their name, but they do policy work. So I think Hmm. it – what you tend to do is people will come together and then they're sort of looking at that, you know, what's possible, who's in the room. So really who you manage to get in the room can oftentimes influence very much what you're focusing on. And I think there are also opportunities. So when you have a state law that passes that may affect a lot of different jurisdictions, you may have opportunities at that point to then act on a policy at your county level because of something that happened at the state level. So, for example, in California, they had an organic waste bill passed at the state level that basically meant that a lot of different jurisdictions were going to have to figure out what to do with organic waste. And some of the food policy councils have stepped up to the plate to help with that. So they're trying to decide what food could be rescued for human consumption and given to you know shelters or food banks, et cetera. And then the other, what that can't be rescued, can it be composted so it's not going into the landfill? Basically trying to keep as much food waste out of the landfill as possible. So that happened in California recently, and I know Maryland has also passed – a, a farm being able to compost, I think, on farms is the definition. And Montgomery Food Council did some great work, educational work and outreach with the farmers in their area about what does that state law mean for them and then educating them on how the, now that this policy has passed, what are the opportunities for them to be able to divert some of their crop access to uh, people who need it and then also to compost it. So there's a, a range between the idea of implementing what state policy might be and how you address that, and also dealing with the questions you might face in a particular community, right? Correct. I mean... So some some of them work, and this is in much... You'll see this emerge because of the structure of the council. So we track a lot of data nationally, and we look at what's happening across the country with food policy councils. We do a directory update, so there's about 215 councils that are registered on our database in the U.S. only. And those are at varying levels. And you know, So some of them are at the county, some are at the city level, some are at the state, and sometimes they're regional in nature, so they might be multi-county. So for those groups, yeah, so you look at that sort of universe – I'd say about it's a little over thirty-five percent of them are registered, are what they consider like grassroots organized, and in those cases, they are doing very much the scan of what is happening in our community, and what can we do about it with regards to food. So, food access is one of the most popular topics for these groups to work on. Food access. Food access, and it gets framed as a food access issue, but it also. When you look at the projects and the activities that are happening around food access, there is usually an anti-hunger component as well because you're dealing with people who cannot, for a lot of reasons, afford to uh, buy the food that's in their neighborhood or travel outside of their neighborhood to get food. So you're looking at, you know, across the board. They might frame it differently, but sometimes the activities are very similar. So that's interesting. I think the the man who's um, active in this now, Mark Winnie, is that his name? Yep. Food Policy Council Program Director for, for the Community Food Security Coalition. In one of his pieces, he wrote that food policy councils are democracy in action. Mm-hmm. 
So, but is that always? I mean, so if Baltimore City is government run. And Prince George's County is volunteer. Is that how that works? Well, there is actually a a position that is um, a full-time staff person who staffs Prince George's County. And that she is – I think they say it incubated by the Institute for Public Health Innovation. So that group is – what we would call like a backbone organization for the Food Equity Council. So, and and Mark actually is currently working with us now on the um, uh-huh. our Food Policy Networks project. And I I agree with the statement that it really can be food democracy in action. But I think it's very much a design part of the design that you set up. And so, how are people understanding what's happening in the community? So, do you? have people either represented at the table when you're talking about those issues. So oftentimes in Baltimore City, even though it's government run, there are there's Food PAC, the Food Policy Advisory Committee. And those groups so it's that's mostly nonprofits who are working in some component in, in the food world that come to those meetings on a I think it's every other month. And then that gives the opportunity, the staff that are staffing it to hear what's going on. They get to share what, what they're working on. They do presentations. They can say, these are the policy barriers we're running up against. We really want to work on this letter writing campaign. So it's a really great forum for everybody who's working on food issues to be in the same room together. And that so the model in Baltimore City is slightly different, but they are very heterogeneous. So it's hard to say food policy councils in general have these defining characteristics because you can run up against, um, you know, small towns and you know or rural areas that have a food policy council that are doing you know that are, you know, I'd say small in nature because they have fewer people and different issues that they're dealing with than they are at the city level, and so it really depends on how it gets structured and who's actually organizing it and you know where what what's the thing that brought them all together so you know Baltimore started years ago just you know because of the sustainability plan and some issues that had come up with the health commissioner um, around where people lived and access to food and health outcomes so I'm, I'm curious I mean when people hear this I mean they, some people are probably questioning and what popped through my mind was I mean w- Where's the power inside these groups? Does it really exist in all of them or in some of them? I mean, you can see some of these could be kind of discussion societies about where we should go, but not necessarily have the power to make things happen. I've heard some of them be described as, oh, that's the coffee club group. You right. Know? <laughs> you know? and, and I think that's actually a fair assessment of some groups. So that's why I talk about there is a lot of heterogeneity, and you wouldn't want mm-hmm. to say that there's power in, in any of them. I think the best case scenario is they become the go-to group when there are food issues on the table within a, in, a, in a government setting, when there's going to be policy made, when you're a neighborhood and you're having issues with your community members having, you know, poor health access or whatever, you know, transportation, there's something you can do with transportation. So I think it becomes, you want to be the, the people that they turn to, to help change, you know, change whatever it is that they're trying to change. So, can you, so in the state of Maryland, yes, give me some, what are the differences in how they function in different places? I mean, where's the county on the, on the shore? The Midshore Group. Yeah, the Midshore, and they so a multi-county group. Multi-county group. They're just getting started, um, so I think that, and I do believe that's I don't know four or five counties. So we've been doing a little bit of work with them, but I think they're still in the pretty early stages about looking at doing an assessment. So usually they start out by 
looking at the data that's available on their counties and seeing what the issues are. And I think in most areas, the two big issues that people are trying to address or looking at are the hunger and the economic development in a lot of communities. This is So they'll come at it from a variety of ways, but I think those are the two. So on the shore, that would involve you have to wrestle with economic development. You're wrestling with poultry. Wrestling with poultry. And farming. Yes. Or even can, you know, what are the opportunities out there? I think it's less wrestling. So it's, I mean, I think it's not the venue where you're going to come, you know, bring all the poultry people together and say, let's talk about what the problems are. I don't think that's the place for it. And, you know, Mark talks about that too. This is not where you're going to go, you know, combat the multinational forces around the food system. It's really more what's the scale in which we can influence and where can we work? So if you're looking at something like that, are there opportunities for farms out there that are new markets, new revenue streams, and how can this food council help them identify those and make the case for that, if indeed there is a case to be made. So I think it is some of it is like just doing a scan to be realistic about what is it that we can support? What can happen around here? You know, I know there has been talk of a food hub out there. I don't really know where that stands now. But I think those there are market-based solutions. And oftentimes with those market-based solutions, there are also policies that can help um, appropriations that can be in place to help support them. And so I think when you're a food policy council, that's what you're looking for are more what are the solutions that we can work toward and what's sort of the vision for where we want to be. So what – if you took the ones that, that, we, that are functioning, mm-hmm. um, what are the issues that they're, they're wrestling with? I mean what, so pick them. There's Baltimore City there's, is, and there are ones in the, the central Maryland, right? The, yeah. I mean so the one – in Montgomery County – and um, Howard County had a task force, but that has since been disbanded. Um, Baltimore City, uh, Prince George's County. There's one uh, in the southern Maryland states, which is part it, – it's um, – I'm Charles County. And yeah, Christine Bergmark's group, and I cannot remember the name of it right now. But it's it was part of the Ag Commission, but they've done some really interesting work on how do you pair hunger – with um, farmers and being able to take that food. Uh So some of it is like that. It seemingly, you know, that's one of those things where unless you had those people in the room together, they wouldn't necessarily think. Farmers aren't looking to figure out. I mean, they know there's excess food, right? They know, but uh, they have a lot of work to do. Are they going to sit around and try and figure out what to do with that excess? So if you have somebody like a food council that can come and help figure that out and you are there simply saying, we've got this, what can we make, how do we make this happen? They started a project around this. So I think there, there's some work that's policy and there's some work that you would think of as policy. So we define policy much broader than just legislative action. We think about allocation of resources, you know, how you fund scholarship, um, any really institutional policies, changes in the way that we think of doing business. So if you've got you – know, this is just the way we do it. This is what's happening. And you're saying – Maybe we don't want to do it this way anymore. Mm-hmm. Let's think about that. That we define it pretty broadly because I think, depending on where you're working and what you're trying to work on, um, it can be, you know, kind of daunting sometimes. So I know Prince George's County has worked on some he- healthy mobile vending uh, regulations. Um, Montgomery County just—I was just talking about the food waste. You know, being able to actually help farmers identify, you know, what could be used. They helped with, you know, at their farm community be able to say, okay. How are you going to execute this? Once the policy is passed, you need help to do that. And they did educational sessions around that. So I think 
those are the roles they play, and it really just depends on you know who's there. They have different working groups, so you've got usually um, you know a food access group, an anti hunger group that would be somewhere in there. You've got economic development because that's a big part of it. Is how are you going to create new businesses? Urban ag is another area where you get, um, especially in areas where there's a fair amount of land available. Um, Montgomery County has just done a really nice food assessment of the neighborhoods. I mean, it is one of the wealthier counties in the country. But you have pockets of people, you know, and and areas in that county where there are, you know, significant rates of food insecurity. So they're trying to address who are these people who are food insecure and what can we do to help them become more food secure. So what would you say then is the – The logical progression food policy, food policy councils. I mean, where, where will they go? What, what do you think that they will evolve into? In you mean so in Maryland, in the country, in well, I was thinking about Maryland, but we can talk about the country. Well, I think the, you know that's a great question. So I think about this a lot, and I think about what the potential is, and there are. A lot of ways to work on policy. You can be like a Mike Bloomberg and come in and you know, where do I have a, a way to jurisdict something on sodas? Mm-hmm. I'm going to you know do this, and that is certainly. I mean, it makes a big splash. You get all this, and so that's certainly one way of doing it. And then there's like coalition models where you're single issue, you're just going forward. And then there are these really they're slower moving. You know. Uh, so it takes a long time to bring people along and to get people to understand what you're trying to do. But I feel like there's an enormous amount of civic engagement that happens in those groups that probably happens with people who would never identify as policy people or even interested in policy until they've been in that room for a while. So you're one of the fascinating things for me in sitting in on sessions and going to different food policy councils meetings is just what happens with the dynamics in the room and what's going on and how much people start to understand other people's view of the problems that we're all facing. And once you start to understand those problems, it's a lot harder to polarize an issue. And it becomes part of, you know, how can you have this problem, we have this problem, is there ground where we can meet? So I feel like in Maryland and in many other states, there's probably 10 different states where they actually, there are so many food policy councils, there's a body that's convening them at some we have capacity. Like we do, we do. We, Institute for Public Health Innovation has been doing that. And Michigan, you know, Iowa, California, there's been other, other places in North Carolina where this is happening. <clears throat> I don't know that we know yet what they can do, but I feel like it's really fertile ground for seeing what can happen when you provide a community-based solution to a problem that's at an appropriate scale. It is not going to solve the problems, the giant problems of the food system issues, because that jurisdictional level is much higher. However, having said that, I sometimes wonder, because we have so much uh, inaction at the federal level for many reasons, that is there the possibility of these groups influencing what's happening at the state level, the state groups influencing what's happening at the federal level? Mm-hmm. We just did a scan of um, – we worked with the National Conference of State Legislators to do a scan of what had happened in from 2012 to 2014 with local food policies. 
and there were, let me see here, I have the whole sheet on. Um, 36 states in the District of Columbia enacted 91 bills regarding local food production and access in those in that time period. And I do think the federal government is paying more attention to what's happening at those levels because they're recognizing that if they aren't in the absence of taking action, other groups are going to take action. We saw that with, you know, the Affordable Care Act and trans fats and menu labeling and things like that. So there's certain, you know, it gets to a certain point and nobody wants to have all these different regulations. So I think there are a lot of opportunities to influence that level. And I think that we we can start to think about those more strategically. I, I hesitate to say we want to impose that. Like this is what you should be working on because I do feel like that – that takes away from the nature of those groups also being able to decide, what, you know, what should we be working on for our community, not just, right, right. Gonna, you know. And so as we conclude, I mean, just, it's a, Maryland in many ways is like ahead of the game here, which is really an important thing in terms of the growth of it in the state. Um, and what we want to do here, um, and it, which we're going to over the next period, over this next year, is kind of really start creating these discussions with people who are on these food policy councils, talking about what these food policy means, how they integrate in the state, how, what they mean in various counties and, 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 and groups and so um, this is kind of our introductory conversation. Ann Palmer is program director for the Center for a Livable Future at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health uh, and uh, is doing a lot of work with the Food, food Policy Councils, which we'll be covering in some depth here on Soundbites, the Mark Steiner Show. And thanks so much for opening the door. Thank you. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media, made possible in part by a grant from the Tom Creek Foundation. Our producers are Stephanie Mavronis and Mark Gunnery. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our engineer at Delmarva Public Radio is Christopher Rank. Our interns are Sienna Greaves, Manifa Wilson, and Calvin Perry. And our theme music is by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. And to podcast the Mark Steiner Show, share it with your friends, visit us on the web at steinershow.org. You can also learn more about Soundbites and listen to past episodes at soundbitesradio.org. Of your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and WSDL 90.7 FM, the Marvel Public Radio. I'm Mark Steiner. Take care. <laughs>